good afternoon. My name is Dick Celeste, for some of you who may not know that, and uh, I'm president of Colorado College, which is a wonderful, wonderful job, and it gives me the honor of welcoming you all this afternoon and introducing the introducer to our very special guest, uh, Senator George McGovern, because she's really the special link between Colorado College and our distinguished speaker. Patricia Ward Kelly, then Patricia Ward, was born in Fort Collins, Colorado, and received a pre the prestigious Betcher Scholarship and chose to bring it to Colorado College. She attended here uh, in ways that she will describe. She absorbed the liberal arts education, majoring in English, and graduating in 1980. She's going to tell you a bit more about her CCA experience in a, in a moment, so I will leave that to her. Patricia has worked as a writer at a film production company in Washington, D.C., as a contributing scholar for the Northwestern Newberry Writings of Herman Melville, and as a freelance journalist. She and legendary uh, dancer, director, choreographer Gene Kelly met at the Smithsonian in 1985 when he was host and narrator for a television special for which she was a writer. Soon after, they began their collaboration on his memoirs. And from there, they went on to become married in 1990 until his death in 1996. In 1992, Gene Kelly designated Patricia as sole trustee of the Gene Kelly Image Trust, the entity governing the Gene Kelly rights of publicity, including the use of his name, voice, likeness, and persona. She currently serves in this capacity. In, her, in addition to her speaking engagements and organization of the Gene Kelly collection, she's working on the book about her late husband and their life together. So please join me in giving a very warm welcome to one of CC's very own, uh, Patricia Ward-Kelly. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It is very nice to be back and very familiar. We took a golf cart over and I passed Rat Rats Hall Center and some of the places that were very familiar, Gloomis Hall, where I lived. Um, as President Celeste said, I had the pleasure of being married to one of the biggest legends in Hollywood history. I was privileged that he chose me to tell his story. And as Neil Reinitz, the former head of the English department, used to say, it was one of the more unusual things that one could do with a degree in English from Colorado College. <laughs> People often suggested that being married to Gene Kelly opened a lot of doors for me. I've always maintained that it was actually Colorado College that opened those doors. I'm essentially a poster child for a liberal arts education, and particularly the block plan. Everything I learned here, I have carried with me every step of the way. There are several in this room and several who are no longer here who were part of this remarkable education. Inspirational instructors like Daniel Tynan, Thomas Mauck, James Yaffe, George Drake, Salvatore Bizarro, who both formed and informed my vision. They guided me and nudged me and encouraged me and most of all, encouraged me to excel and to explore. And to bring things full circle, it was the man we're honored to have here in the hall with us tonight who was essentially responsible for getting me to Colorado College in the first place, though he never knew it at the time. In the days of Vietnam and Kent State, George McGovern's fire and dedication and integrity fueled our imaginations and gave us hope. He helped us to believe in the impossible. He spurred us to break down barriers and to accomplish our goals. In my application to Colorado College, essentially every line reflects the influence of George McGovern. As a devoted worker in McGovern's presidential campaign in 1972, 
I was hauled in by the police in Fort Collins, Colorado, for distributing his literature on a street corner one night. I was 12 years old. (laughs) Though he lost the election, he proved to us not only that he was right, but that we were right to stand by him. And now it is my great pleasure to present this very special friend, two-term U.S. congressman, three-term U.S. senator, 1972 Democratic presidential nominee, ambassador to the United Nations, decorated World War II bomber pilot, recipient of the Medal of Freedom and the World Food Prize, noted historian, and a guy from South Dakota with just a lot of good common sense. Ladies and gentlemen, Senator George McGovern. Thank you. Thank you. It's always uh, nice to be introduced by a dear friend. You come off better that uh, way. Uh, Earlier, uh, actually a little bit more than that, about a week ago, I guess it was, I spoke at the um, Presidential Library of uh, President Nixon, and the place was packed. 750 people turned out. Gorby Dahl was to introduce me. He was in a wheelchair, and he had a book with him. And when it came time for Gore to introduce me, he uh, read from that book for 30 minutes. (laughs) I, I timed him and never mentioned me at the end of the reading. So I had to get somebody else to uh, introduce me. Someday I'm going to write an article or a short book about in- introductions. I think the, maybe one of the most memorable ones, I was a brand new member of the House of Representatives, and Hubert Humphrey, who by then was a senior Senator called me and said, George, I'm supposed to speak in Minnesota tonight, and Lyndon Johnson, the majority leader, has just scheduled an important roll call vote. I've got to cancel out on that event. Um, Would you go out there and speak for me? I said, Hubert, they don't want to hear a freshman senator from South Dakota when they're accustomed to one of the great orators of our time, and you. Well, he said, I think they'll understand. So I arrived in this town. The the county chairman picked me up at the uh, airport, and if you ever saw anybody's face fall, uh, he made no effort to hide it. He says, oh, God, this is just terrible. And uh, I thought maybe he would recover by the time he was to introduce me at the dinner, but he got up and he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have some very bad news uh, for you. Uh, Senator Humphrey is not here, and Congressman McGovern will speak. And that was it. So anyway, I remembered that one for quite a uh, quite a while, but I'm glad to be on this campus. It's a great university, and I'm I'm just delighted to uh, be here. When you get to be 87, uh, you're just glad to be anywhere, <laughs> and uh, so I am pleased for that reason and others. Uh, President Celeste is a longtime friend of mine back in the days when he directed the Peace Corps or was governor of uh, Ohio. 
I thought he did something while he was governor that was very touching. You folks know that there was a tragedy at Kent State uh, University in which four students were killed um, by the Colorado National um, Guard. Um, some of them students just walking to class. They weren't participating in a demonstration or any, anything else. And not much was said about that afterwards until Governor Celeste came along and he got up at a large gathering of people and he said, as governor of this state, um, I want to apologize for what happened at Kent State University so many years ago. And it provided a kind of a heal the wounds type experience that I thought was wonderful. And so uh, it's good to be at your university, uh, uh, President Celeste. And uh, you know, uh, some people are, are lucky enough to uh, be with a beautiful woman. I was surrounded by two of them uh, before this meeting today. Uh, Patricia Ward Kelly and uh, Governor Celeste, beautiful wife over, over here, Jacqueline. I've got a granddaughter in this audience somewhere. Will she raise her hand so I can make sure she's here? Here she is, right in the front row, okay. Um, her mother was uh, Terry McGovern. Uh, who um, was a marvelous young woman. Uh, everybody loved her. But she, um, she had a problem with depression, which she began medicating with vodka, and uh, it didn't work out so well. She was in and out of many uh, treatments programs, uh, um, Marion knows all about this. And um, one time after finishing a treatment program in Madison, Wisconsin, she uh, uh, was headed for an apartment that I had helped her, help her get. And um, she met a Vietnam veteran who was a friend of hers, and he said, let's just have one highball, a Christmas toast. And uh, three hours later, she um, fell into a snowbank while deeply intoxicated and froze to death. So this was very tough on Marion and her sister, but they're, they're a couple of stars. I'm very proud of both of them. They. Uh, um, they help. They help reinvigorate my faith in young people. I've always had a lot of faith in young people, but um, Marion reinforces that every time I see the things that she has done. Abraham Lincoln was a remarkable man. I think he was not only the greatest president we ever had, but I think he was the greatest man. Uh, alas, we've never had a woman in the White House, but um, he was a great man, and he became that over great handicaps. I thought after going through Northwestern University all the way to a PhD in history that I had accomplished something, but when it came time to run for president, I wasn't entirely sure I was adequately uh, equipped for the uh, job. I got over that as the campaign went on. But um, Lincoln, instead of having a PhD, had some authors say two years of schooling, and some say one, because his teachers were 
itinerant teachers who would come through, stay in the village for a month or so, and then move on to the next town, but somewhere between one and two years. Um, in that brief time, elementary grades, of course, he learned how to read, and he learned how to write, and he never stopped. He read and read and read and read until he became one of the best read presidents we've ever had. He read Shakespeare, he read the King James Version of the Bible, he read Blackstone's commentaries, and numerous other things. There's no, I couldn't find any evidence he had ever read a novel, but he read all kinds of nonfiction. It led to a breakup with his father. His father was a farmer, first in Kentucky, then in Indiana, finally in Illinois, and he was a hard worker. And he wanted Lincoln, who was a big raw bone guy, to work as hard as he did. Lincoln was not lazy, but his father thought he was because every time he'd assign him some piece of work, uh, he'd find him leaning up against a tree reading a book before it was uh, uh, over. And the feelings between the two men finally became so bad that uh, Lincoln didn't even attend his father's funeral. But his mother's, and he had two mothers, the first mother died quite young. She was a remarkable woman, and she detected Lincoln's intellectual capacities, and she pushed him to read and to write and to study. Uh, and he did that faithfully for years. His second mother was also a very good woman, and she pushed him. She saw the same talents. So he had two uh, rather uh, remarkable women that pushed him in that uh, direction. Uh, the other problem that Lincoln had uh, was depression, what we would call clinical depression. In his day, they called it uh, melancholy. I've noticed in a number of the biographies of Lincoln, they barely mention this, but it was a massive problem uh, in his life. He never fully got over it. And as a young man particularly, he considered suicide. These spells of um, despondency were so painful and so paralyzing that he seriously considered on a number of occasions committing suicide. He told one of his colleagues in the Illinois State Senate that he never carried a pocket knife for fear he might slit his own throat in a moment of despondency. Uh, he, uh, when he was 32 years old, he wrote a letter to one of his friends where he said, I think I'm the most miserable man on this planet. Um, it's hard to find a photograph of Lincoln anywhere where he's smiling. Um, he thought he was an ugly person, very homely. I think he had a noble face, but he didn't think that. And um, once when a, an opponent in a debate called Lincoln two-faced, Lincoln said, does the gentleman really think if God had given me two faces, I'd be wearing this ugly one that I have on tonight? I like that kind of humor, Dick. <laughs> a little uh, self-deprecating and yet a good squelch for a, a barb that somebody else had uh, flown. So there was no medication for depression, no Prozac, no Paxil, no 
lithium, no um, electric shock therapy, none of that. And so he had to carry that burden alone. He was in his office one day during the war, <clears throat> and his entire four years in the White House was taken up by the war. Um, there were a group of women waiting to see him. They had an appointment, and they were in the uh, reception area, and they heard Lincoln with apparently two or three men who were talking with him laughing in the Oval Office. And when the women finally were admitted, the spokesman for the group said, Mr. President, we're honored that you would take time to talk with us, but we must tell you that we're quite disturbed to hear you laughing at a time when young men <clears throat> are dying by the thousands. We lost 600,000 young men in that war. Um, we're, we're, up, we're, we're distressed uh, to hear laughter at a time like this. And he said, well, ma'am, uh, <clears throat> I can understand your feelings, but I must tell you, if I could not occasionally laugh in this terrible war, my heart would break. And uh, the women accepted that uh, explanation. Lincoln thought that his greatest achievement was the Emancipation uh, Proclamation. I uh, very respectfully uh, disagree. I think the Emancipation Proclamation was obviously an important document, but it freed the slaves only in the 11 states of the Confederacy, where Lincoln was powerless uh, to enforce a uh, proclamation of freedom for the slaves in the South. Um, I don't want to minimize the importance of that because later on it led to the 13th Amendment, which did free uh, all the slaves, not only in the United States at that time, but in future times. Um, I think Lincoln's greatest achievement was keeping the Union together. I think that's what the Civil War was all about. Lincoln didn't want the southern states to secede. He did everything he could think of to hold them in the Union. He issued a public statement before the war. If I could save this Union by freeing all of the slaves, I would do that. But if I could save the Union by freeing none of the slaves, that I would do. That was geared to the South. If I could save the Union by freeing some of the slaves, but not all of them, which is what he eventually did, uh, that I would do, but the Union must be preserved. We call ourselves the United States of America. It came very close to breaking apart in the 1860s. At an earlier time, New England seriously considered seceding from the Union, in that case over the tariff question. Um, so Lincoln did his best to prevent that from happening, but he did plant himself on a rock where he would not compromise no slavery in the federal territories or in new states coming into the Union. He believed that if you could confine slavery to the South, it would soon die out even there, that you would have to renew uh, the institution with new states. And that's why he was so determined there'd be not a single slave in any new state uh, or any of the territories. But if he knew that slavery might die out if you could confine it to the South, 
so did the Southerners. And that's why they began to secede uh, from the uh, Union until 11 of them had left the Union. But Lincoln did save the Union. He, uh, he did it in spite of all kinds of difficulties, including poor generals. Uh, General McClellan just about drove him to distraction. He would score a victory over some of Lee's armies, but then he wouldn't move. He'd, he'd rest for a month, and the enemy forces would vanish and hit again in some other place. So he had a great, great trouble with his generals. I imagine most of you have heard this one experience where one of uh, the president's staff members told him that they had picked up reports that Grant, General Grant, was drinking heavily. And Lincoln said, find out what he's drinking and give it to the other generals. Uh, Grant, Grant uh, behaved as the kind of a general that Lincoln approved. At, at one point, this isn't generally known, but at one point, Lincoln considered taking over one of the army divisions himself, leaving the White House, going out into the field to command a full division of uh, troops. His staff talked him out of that, his staff and his cabinet said, look, uh, you're not just the commander in chief, you're the president of the United States. A lot of Americans aren't even in the armed forces. You can't just become a general. So he gave up on that, but it's a measure of how frustrated he was with the poor uh, performance of his generals. Um, let me just say one final thing about um, uh, Lincoln, and then um, I'm going to throw this open to questions, and I want you to feel free uh, to uh, answer, to give me questions about health care or Afghanistan or whatever you wish, and because I don't get out here very often, and I want to give you some of my wisdom on these other, <laughs> other, uh, other uh, uh, topics. The uh, one final thing I want to say about the Lincoln administration, there were a number of things in that administration that happened other than simply the Civil War. The Homestead Act was passed. Anybody here know what the Homestead Act? Yeah, a lot of people do. Well, it, was, it set the pattern of family farm agriculture for the next 100 years. Uh, enough acres to a farmer who would live on the land for five years. Uh, five, it was uh, 100, 160 acres. You had to live on the land and farm it for five years, and then it was yours. And that set the pattern of what we call family farming, because it was believed that a single family could do the labor on 160 acres. We know farms have gotten a lot bigger in our time, but that family farm structure hung for most of our history. Uh, secondly, the Land-Grant College Act, the Morrell Act, named after a senator from Vermont. Is there a Colorado State? Well, that's a land-grant college. Iowa State, uh, Ohio State, all these uh, big universities in Colorado, they, they began with the Land-Grant College Act of 1862. The third thing they did was to create the uh, United States Department of Agriculture, the biggest department in the government for many years until the Pentagon came along. Um, and then the Transcontinental Railway. Imagine that. They built that line from Omaha to Sacramento, right in the middle of the Civil War. 
So that was not a do-nothing period in our history, despite the uh, war. Okay, that's probably enough on Lincoln, and I'll open it up now for questions and maybe uh, just just raise a hand, and I'll call it right here. Yeah. That's a good question. There are over 6,000 books on Lincoln, more than all the other presidents combined. Um, you know, I think one thing that's different about my book is that um, I appraise Lincoln as a shrewd politician. Um, most writers appraise him as a great statesman, which he was. He had a great vision for the kind of America he wanted to see, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Pretty good definition of democracy in the Gettysburg Address. But he was also a very shrewd politician. Doris Kearns brings that out pretty well in her book. The way Lincoln was able to take uh, all of his rivals, people that were running against him for the Republican nomination, especially Senator Seward of New York, and he brought a half a dozen of those people into his uh, cabinet. And I think that was a very shrewd move because with a war brewing, we needed unity in this country, and he thought the best way to achieve it was to bring his rivals into his government. It produced a lot of headaches for Lincoln sometimes, but still on balance, I think it was it was a uh, success. Lyndon Johnson had that same theory. He used a little cruder language than uh, <laughs> I hope I can say this at, uh, at this wonderful school. Uh, Lincoln said, it's better to have a guy in your tent peeing out than to have him outside peeing in. <laughs> so I give you that. He actually used a four-letter word, but I thought I'd elevate it a little bit there. So <laughs> uh, and that's what Lincoln did. He had these people... Uh, in the White House helping him muster the word outside rather than outside shooting in at, at him. Uh, he was also a very clever debater and um, he worked hard uh, when he was on the judicial circuit. Uh, he worked hard to keep the names of people that someday might be helpful to him uh, politically. He made a lot of the right moves uh, politically. I, I think you have to admire him for that as well as for his great vision for the, for the country. Yes. You know, that's a good question. And I pondered that same question when I got to thinking about 600,000 young guys uh, killed on both sides. It was the bloodiest war in our history because all the people that died on both sides were Americans. 600,000, it's about what we lost in World War I and World War II combined. And um, I think that's a debatable question. Uh, whether, well, there's two questions. What would Lincoln have done if he knew that we were going to lose uh, 600,000 men? What would he have done? I don't know the answer to that. Obviously, he couldn't know. You never know what the fatalities are going to be in a, in a war. Um, but uh, uh, that's at least a debatable question. Some have said, why not let the South go? They'd eventually come back 
at some point in the in the future. Um, we don't know that. We don't know that they would have come back, and so it, it it's a hard question, and I frankly don't know the answer to it. Yes, Senator. Yes. I well, I know this, first of all, that uh, our standing in the world has gone up dramatically. You know, um, most people around the world don't look like me. They look more like President Obama, brown or yellow or red or black. Um, us whites are now a minority. And I think that um, in addition to that, he sounded the right themes in his campaign. It was a campaign of hope, a campaign of faith in the ideals of the country and the promise of the country. So you've got to give him credit for elevating our standing in the world. Uh, and that's very important. Back in 1940, when President Roosevelt defeated Wendell Wilkie, uh, as he did everybody else that ran against him, he was impressed with Wilkie, and he asked him if he would make a trip around the world uh, and report back to the White House on the attitudes of people everywhere towards the United States. He gave him a B-24 to make this mission, and that's the bomber that I flew in World War II. But I'm sure this one was more comfortable than the one that I, I had. Anyway, Wilkie came back, and he reported, this is almost a quote, uh, everywhere we went, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, we found that the greatest source of American power and influence in the world was the attitude that countries around the world have towards the United States. It's an attitude of confidence in our motives, uh, confidence in our institutions, Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. There's a general feeling, Wilkie said, that uh, America can be counted on to do what is right in human affairs. I've never forgotten that. I've memorized that part of the book because I think that's true. I think that it's too bad that our standing in the world has sunk so low in recent years. And I'm glad that um, Barack Obama has given it a, a lift, as I think he will continue to uh, do. Not, not because he's a Democrat, but because of the kind of man he is, the kind of person he uh, is. I uh, th think he's in some trouble on the health care uh, issue. The, um, uh, I don't want to get too partisan here tonight, but I think the Republicans are behaving in a miserable way uh, in the, um, uh, you know, not because they're Republicans, but because they seem to have lost their bearings and uh, opposed to anything, it seems like, that the president tries to do in the field of health care or uh, elsewhere. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate because we need two good, strong parties in this country. Every, every, every country needs a good conservative party and a good liberal party. I'm, I'm a liberal, and uh, I think we desperately need a... Uh, liberal party, but we also need a conservative one. 
And what I can't figure out with today's conservative leadership is why they would do such unconservative things after the 9-11 attack uh, as going to war against Iraq, which had absolutely nothing to do with that 9-11 attack. I also don't know why an honest-to-goodness conservative would run the national debt up another $4 trillion. And, uh, you know, we Democrats all the time, especially us free-spending liberals, as we're called, uh, we're, we're uh, criticized all the time for deficit spending. And maybe some of that's legitimate criticism, but uh, I don't know what's happened to conservatism when you have an administration in the last eight years that adds $4 trillion to the national debt. So uh, I think that President, Barom, uh, President Obama is doing the best he can to get a health care bill passed. I think I've got a better idea if I can give it to you. Um, when Hillary was setting up a model health care bill 16 years ago, it ran to 1,300 pages. Dick, how many times have you read a 1,300-page uh, bill? Me, none. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I don't think we need a 1,300-page bill, and I'm not even sure we need a thousand-page bill, which I guess is the Obama uh, bill. I would have a one-sentence bill. Congress hereby extends Medicare to all Americans. Now, uh, as long as we've gotten into health care here, uh, some people will tell you, well, that's right, that would be the best solution, but you can't get that through Congress. Why can't we get that through uh, Congress? I can tell you what I think is uh, one of the reasons, probably an important one. The insurance companies now collect every year $450 billion in insurance premiums for health care, private Healthcare. That cost, more than anything else, explains why the cost of healthcare to Americans is more than it is per capita than to any other country in the world. It also explains why the insurance lobby is one of the most powerful on the Capitol Hill. And um, let me just cite quickly one statistic I came across the other day. Uh, Max uh, Baucus, the senior senator from Montana, is the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which has jurisdiction over health care. The insurance lobby has given him in the current season $4 million in campaign funds. That's a lot of money, even in today's huge campaign expenditures. The ranking member of that committee, the ranking Republican, Charles Grassley, got $2 million. So between the two of them, $6 million in campaign contributions. And uh, it's a mistake, I suppose, for one politician, which I am, uh, to uh, cast aspersions on another one where you're not sure of all the motives. I can't say positively that $4 million could make Max Barkas think twice about supporting health care. But I just mentioned that because I do think campaign funds have gotten out of hand and that it's harder and harder to get things 
passed. The, the expenses of campaigns are so high, I kind of feel sorry for members of Congress who have to raise all that money. They, they got to work at it, I'm told, a couple of days a week. Um, but nonetheless, I think it does explain one of the reasons why it's difficult to get comprehensive health care uh, passed. Okay, we only have time for one more question. I yes, right here. Uh, yes, I, I came out against the war in Vietnam in my first year in the United States Senate. Uh, that was 1963. It was very difficult to do that because I had just worked for two years at the White House for President Kennedy running the Food for Peace program. So it was hard to get up on the Senate floor and take issue with... Um, the troops that President Kennedy had sent into Vietnam. But I'm glad I did that because I, I kept it up uh, from then on until we finally terminated the war some 12 years later. Um, and um, it's helped give me some insight, I think, into other areas of conflict. I think it was definitely a mistake to go into Iraq. We've just about ruined that country, pretty well destroyed their whole infrastructure and killed an estimated 600,000 Iraqis, mostly men and uh, children, women and others. Um, and I think it's a mistake to continue putting troops into Afga Afghanistan. Uh, we, um, we've been there about seven years now, and um, I, I was disappointed when President Obama added another 21,000 troops. We now have 68,000 troops there. The Russians put in 100,000 crack troops, uh, they were trying to pacify the place. Um, and uh, they had 25,000 of them killed, uh, another 35,000 wounded or crippled. They, they bankrupted the Soviet treasury. And some of our Soviet experts think that's why the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. There are now 16 separate states instead of the United Soviet Republics. So I worry about Afghanistan. A lot of people have tried to subdue it. One of the problems is that as we understand nationhood, it's not really a nation. It's a um, collection of warlords. Uh, each one sitting on top of a different mountain, each one heading up a tribe whose loyalty is to that warlord more than to the national capital at Kabul. So it's very difficult to know how to make outside, an outside military presence felt. I guess we're trying to target the uh, Taliban but we tried for many years to target the Viet Cong in Vietnam, all to no avail. Um, I would wager that quite a few people in this audience, if you had been living in Vietnam during the French uh, imperial control, they, they ruled, a, ruled it as a colony, that when Ho Chi Minh started leading a rebellion against the French, I, I would wager that there are people in this room that would have volunteered if, if you were Vietnamese and in college somewhere, so you were smart. And uh, 
I think that's what, that's what would have happened. Anyway, we may have some of the same thing in Afghanistan, this whole collection of warlords. Uh, you don't know where they're going to come down. Um, the uh, Taliban are mostly from Pakistan. Are we going to go in there, too, to, to crush the Taliban? That's where, it, that's where the Taliban originated, in, um, in uh, Pakistan. So I, um, I worry about that. I wish the president, and maybe he will, would take a look at that situation before we get in any deeper and see if we can't uh, get out of there. Um, I wish the United Nations would take on complicated problems like this. I think that was the hope of the founders, that no one country would have to carry that burden. Um, I don't think it's right that the United States has to carry the burden for every conflict that boils over around the, the world. You know, it's getting so we can't afford it. Even if it were a good idea, we can't afford to keep these wars uh, going. We got two going now in Iraq and Afghanistan. Pakistan's boiling up on the margin there. I, uh, I, uh, I hope we'll get out of there. I, I hate to criticize a brand new president that I admire so much, but um, I took issue with my friend John Kennedy, later um, Lyndon Johnson, later Richard Nixon, not necessarily a dear friend. But, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, thanks ever so much for coming out to hear me. Today.